Hey everyone, before we kick off the show today, gotta tell you about our friends at La Terrain Watches. Time pieces to explore. La Terrain Watches was established in 2018. They are built to tell your story with every moment in time captured on your wrist. Our watches are built for the ambitious and hardworking because just like you, we never settle for less. They are water-resistant, suitable for everyday use, and crafted with timeless details. They have the Swiss elegance that you're used to without the Swiss price tag. And La Terrain watches are available for you as a Crunch Time Plays listener at la-t-o-u-r-a-i-n-e.com slash Crunch Time Plays. Make sure you... Type in that promo code CRUNCHTIMEPLAYS at checkout and you'll automatically get that 10% off discount. That's lots of rain watches. Time pieces to explore. It is time to kick off the show today. Roll the intro and here we go. It's time for the Crunch Time Plays podcast where we talk all things sports from the collegiate level all the way up to the pros. And now, here's your host, Bennett Ganey. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Crunch Time Plays, episode number four. And we are so delighted to be joined today by the host of Late Kick Live, host of the Late Kick Pod. He is from 247 Sports. He is Mr. College Football. He is Josh Pate. What's up, my friend? Yeah, I want to stress to the viewers and listeners, we do not have that term trademarked yet. So that just came off the tip of your tongue. That's not anything that I've put on a T-shirt or I'm using for marketing purposes. And that's a really long-winded way of saying, I'm good. How about you? <laughs> I'm doing great. And the reason I call you that, you know, you of course, you say you hadn't had it trademarked yet, but I got a feeling it's coming here pretty soon. No, I just wrote it down right now. Yeah, that's what I'll do when I get off the call. I just wanted to speak in current terms. <laughs> well, starting off in the SEC, Josh, just want to talk about your thoughts on some new hires. And no, uh, South Carolina, you got Shane Beamer at Auburn, Brian Harson at Vanderbilt, Court Lee, and then at Tennessee, you have J- the other Josh, Josh Heupel. Just wanted to give your get your thoughts on that and what fan base do you think has the most optimism, not only in 2021, but beyond 2021? Well, I don't think there's much immediate optimism at Tennessee. I don't think there's much immediate optimism at South Carolina. I think you you could make an argument to have uh, somewhat immediate optimism at Auburn, only because I, they're not under any kind of sanction. The roster is not some ground-up rebuild. I think that's what largely Shane Beamer feels like he's inheriting. It certainly feels like what Josh Heupel is inheriting. And so at Auburn, you know, the big question around uh, Brian Harson wasn't, oh, can he take three or four years and rebuild the roster? It was... Does he have any clue about the lay of the land in the SEC? And so, you know, sometimes I think those questions are overblown. We've certainly seen instances famously in the past where everyone from Nick Saban to Urban Meyer has come in the SEC. And, you know, they've had pretty immediate success. Now, I did just mention two of the best of all time because those could be anecdotal and you could find a litany of other coaches who have crashed and burned, period, much less taking jobs in unfamiliar geographic territory. So with Harson, the question was that. And then the question was also, from a recruiting standpoint, can he put together a staff? And I think what he did that would give you reason to be somewhat optimistic if you were an Auburn fan immediately is at least he went out and he got a coaching staff full of guys who know the SEC. Now, I wouldn't say that he got a a cast full of all-star recruiters by any stretch, but I would say at least 
you know, when, when you ask about the, the mobile high school football landscape or the Atlanta high school football landscape, they're not going to be scratching their heads, you know, licking their finger and flipping through a directory trying to find out, hmm, we're, St. Paul's Episcopal, like what, who goes there? Where's that located? It's not going to be that at Auburn. And so the other thing is what you hope if you're an Auburn fan is you've got a guy who's coming in and who understands how to install, not even on one side of the football, but just in general, a style of football that can translate and that can be duplicable week over week. And you don't have these wild highs and lows. And if plan A doesn't work, then, well, there is no plan B, which is what, especially offensively, it kind of felt like under Gus Malzahn for a while. So that would be my hope. Now, having said that, I do think there is still a ways to go at Auburn. And I do still think that the unfamiliarity may be an initial obstacle. We'll see how long that takes. But you also have to remember this, and I don't know how to categorize this, to be honest with you, but you have to remember for every new hire, we're also coming off a situation that was unprecedented. And hopefully we're coming off of it uh, when we come to the next season. And so that is very on the surface, an obvious problem. But beneath the surface, I did an interview with Nick Saban the other day. He brought up a point I had never thought about. I was asking him about recruiting. It was on signing day. I was asking him about the class he had signed. How hard was the process when you didn't have in-person evaluation? You couldn't go out on the road for the spring. And he said, in not so many words, he said, that wasn't really the hardest part because we had evaluations from these guys' junior seasons. What's going to be hard, and now think about this being a new head coach, what's going to be hard is we did not have, in a lot of cases, the ability to evaluate the 2022 kids. And so we're coming up on what will be their senior years in high school, hopefully when you're ready to take commitments from them. And in some cases, you haven't even done a proper evaluation. The last time you saw someone play football was when they were 10th graders. And so that, I think, will be a triply challenging hurdle to clear for any kind of new coaching staff, no matter where you are and no matter you know how behind the eight ball or not you felt like you were coming in just on the surface. Yeah, I wanted to get into a staff dynamic at Auburn. I know Brian Harson, he he hired, you know, some guys from that are longtime experienced guys in the SEC in Mike Bobo and Will Friend. And obviously Derek Mason is defensive coordinator. And then he also brought some guys in from Boise State. Where what do you think the the dynamic of that staff is? Whereas guys where you have some guys that are SEC lifers or, or retreads, as some people have said, but then you also have some new blood and some guys in Boise State. Just what do you think the dynamic is there? I think it's healthy. Um, you know, if I were to construct a staff and I were to be coming from outside a region into a region, from a 50,000 foot perspective, that's what you want. You want some, first off, you want a good mixture of veteran and cutting their teeth. You want a good mixture of, experience around the country. You got to, you got to balance. How much do you value recruiting? How much do you value X's and O's? And then also for Brian Harson, you know, he's got to ask himself, I've established my way of doing it at Boise. You get really comfortable with your way of doing it. And, and you believe, and I believe this too, if you know how to implement the winning formula at one place, theoretically, you should be able to implement it anywhere. And he has been fairly successful at Boise, uh, which could lead you to believe, all right, I know how to do it. Let me bring my own folks. But at the same time, you know, he wasn't so egocentric as to look around and say, no, I'm going to bring Idaho to Auburn. Like that's, that's not what the bumper sticker should say. And so you have to have a healthy infusion, but I'll tell you the one thing that he did from a, from a staff hiring standpoint 
And this is kind of a microcosm of, I think, the way his initial tenure at Auburn will be. Take a hire like Derek Mason. So Derek Mason is the head coach at Vanderbilt. He gets fired, and you get him as your defensive coordinator, and that's a good hire. That would be a good hire for Alabama. That would be a good hire for LSU. Anyone would would be better off having a guy like Derek Mason because I'm a believer you stack as many former head coaches on your staff as possible. And so here's the hidden, though. Here's the unknown with Derek Mason. I don't doubt that he can coach football. I don't doubt any of that. But I don't think anyone looked at the hire of Derek Mason and said, oh, look, we got, a, we got ourselves an all-world recruiter as our defensive coordinator. No one says that. No one thinks much of Derek Mason as a recruiter. And I don't know that that may not be a little bit short-sighted. And the reason is because you don't know who he is as a recruiter. I don't either. We've never gotten a chance to see because he didn't come for, he didn't come to Auburn by way of Ohio State by way of Texas. He came here by way of Vanderbilt, by way of Stanford. And so I could put some of the most elite recruiters in America at Vandy and Stanford and because of the academic hurdles alone, we're not really going to find out what they could do heads up against the big boys. Well, now is really the first time that we get to see Derek Mason recruit heads up you know, recruit Atlanta, recruit Mobile, recruit the state of Alabama, go to South Florida, go to East Texas, Louisiana. That's where Auburn tip, uh, t- typically recruits, at least. And we're going to get to see, finally, not only what kind of coordinator is he, but what kind of recruiter is he. And that is a microcosm of what we'll learn about Brian Harson as a head coach, what we'll learn about the rest of his staff, and in turn, what we'll learn about the identity of that program moving forward. Yeah, I just wanted to switch now to talking about Brian Harson, talking about the coach that he poached a lot of guys from. That's Shane Beamer in in Columbia. Yeah. Just wanted to get your thoughts on that hire. And can I know you can win at South Carolina? You have to be a more with less kind of guy. You're not going to get the the five stuff. You're not going to get the big time five stars. Just what makes you think he will have success at South Carolina? Well, let me tell you. I, I am not going to go as far as you did. Now, I will go as far as you did to say in the immediate future, you probably can't do those things. But I mean, it wasn't. But so we're sitting here right now. It's it's early February. We're right after National Signing Day. Listen, I, I remember a year ago, last Wednesday, I guess it was, I was sitting in a studio uh, doing the National Signing Day show, and it was Jordan Birch committing to South Carolina. I mean, he's one of the top players in the country, top player in South Carolina, obviously. And um you know, they've done it in the past. Like they have landed five-star talent in the past. The state of South Carolina is every couple of years going to have one of those boom cycles where they produce some big, big time in-state talent that normally leaves the state, but doesn't always have to leave the state. And I'll also say, you know, I don't, I don't believe that you have to just relegate yourself to accepting tier three status. You may not ever compete with, you know, Alabama. You may not ever compete with Ohio State year in and year out. I stopped short of saying Clemson for the reason that uh, goes into the point I'm about to make. If we were to rewind a decade, and this is well before Shane Beamer, like if if we rewind a decade, not only is Clemson not on top of that rivalry, I mean, they're the number two in that rivalry. They do not have a roster that even remotely resembles what they have today. And my point there is not to knock Clemson. They deserve all the credit in the world. What I'm saying is 10 years ago, we would have said South Carolina was the superior program, not just team, but program of the two. And 10 years is not all that long ago. And so we fast forward, now it's 2020 and 2021, and you look around and say, okay, it's not close now. I mean, Clemson's in another galaxy. But my my question would be, what is it they did that Carolina wouldn't technically be capable of doing? Because if there was something intrinsic about Clemson, and if there was something in their DNA that made them predisposed to be able to enjoy that level of success, whereas South Carolina never could, 
they never would have been second fiddle to him in the first place would be my point. Here's the answer. They're in a much more favorable situation in the ACC. That's it. That's really the only answer. Because outside of that, I mean, they're comparable, uh, university size, endowment. Uh, they recruit from the same recruiting bed. All the rest of it's the same. I mean, their fans live next door to each other. So there's nothing really else that's different. I know they would argue there are worlds that are different, but for our purposes, there isn't. So Shane Beamer has to walk in. And he has to look around and he has to answer the question that a lot of other people ask about the sport of college football. And that is, do we have a situation now where once elite programs elevate to a certain point, they just detach themselves and you could never catch them again? Now, I think that's largely made up. I think that's a falsehood, but I do think it's hard. But I think it's always been hard too. what he's got to do is basically he's got to just patch the holes right now. They they did not stop the leaks when he got hired. When he got hired, you had kids going to the transfer portal, which is to be expected. But then you had a lot of coaches leave and then he hires a staff and then a lot of them leave. And so it feels like in a way, you know, you're watching that, whatever that infomercial is where you, you know, you got the oxy pads that you put all over the place and the guy ends up being able to ride a boat filled with nothing but that stuff. Well, that's what he's doing right now. He's got a boat that's made up of like screen porch material and he's got to plug the whole boat or else it's going to sink. So right now they were ranked in the seventies in our 24 seven sports team recruiting rankings. I don't care. I want them to have an entire staff. We have to eat applesauce before we can eat chicken around here. And so right now we're just trying to gum the applesauce. We're just trying to get a staff together and then let's make sure whoever's going to be on this roster is ready for spring. And com- here's what compounds matters. A- at Auburn, they hired Brian Harson, who's been a head coach for several years. Shane Beamer's never been a head coach. And so on top of all this mess that would be a problem for Nick Saban, if he inherited it, we got to find out if you can even be a head coach. And so I don't even know when that answer comes. I don't think it'll come in year one, but it's it's a several-year rebuild at Carolina right now. Yeah, and that's my opinion too. But just wanted to get your thoughts on – I know you mentioned the, the staff real quick. Just wanted to get your thoughts on – he bring, loses obviously loses Mike Bobo to Auburn, brings in Marcus Satterfield to be the offensive coordinator. He obviously has a lot of ties to Matt Rule. He has a lot of ties to Joe Brady. I know um, Joe Brady's going to come down to Columbia, I think, in the next few weeks from what I've heard to meet with that staff. What what are your thoughts on the guys that maybe aren't Marcus Satterfield? He's obviously Joe Brady kind of adjacent. Uh, what what are your thoughts on those kind of guys that are adjacent guys of top offensive minds? Well, if it works, it works. You know, you don't, you didn't have to watch LSU multiple years. Luckily, you didn't need to because you couldn't. But you didn't need to watch them under Joe Brady multiple years to realize that guy knows what he's doing. Now, we've seen from a head coaching perspective, we've seen a lot of people try and pull fruit off the Nick Saban tree to very mixed results. Well, at the coordinator level, uh, obviously people were going to gravitate towards that Joe Brady tree. I mean, Ed Orgeron, after a year of trying to do it another way, he just did it in hiring his new offensive coordinator. So I think it's beneficial, number one, in that hopefully you're finding someone who knows how to implement what a guy like Joe Brady implemented. But number two, and here's the good news for what you just mentioned, you know, Joe Brady has not arrived by any stretch. Joe Brady wants to be a head coach one day, either in the NFL or college, but wants to be a head coach. And he has not ascended to that level yet. Uh, He will in the very short future, he probably will. But the reason that it puts you in an advantageous position is because when you hire someone, in this case, Satterfield, when you hire someone who is of that tree, 
the roots of that tree being Joe Brady, he has all the motivation in the world to get out there and maximize the potential of all of all of the fruit from his tree, because ultimately it bleeds back up and it provides him even more value so that if I've got Satterfield down here and oh my goodness, South Carolina is really overachieving offensively so far. Look at LSU. LSU has resurrected their offense. Everybody slowly turns their head in unison. They say, wow. Joe Brady, man, that guy's so good. Even folks who just know his system are able to implement it. Imagine if we hired that guy as our head coach. And so I, you, you rarely get situations where you can take advantage of that. I think Carolina can right now, LSU can, and hopefully it pays off for him. Yeah. I mean, I think it will ultimately. I know Satterfield's had a decent success at Temple. And then obviously he's worked with Joe Brady the past year with the Panthers. But just wanted to switch now to Tennessee and your thoughts on obviously the hiring of Danny White as the AD from UCF. And then he obviously takes a swing at a couple of big hitters for for head, for the head coach and then ultimately settles for his guy, Josh Heupel. Just want to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's so it's really important to tee things up like you just did. You know, if, if Danny White were on a three-way with us right now, he would argue what you just said because, you know, according to him and, and several other ADs before him, they only made one offer, and it was Josh Heupel, and he was their first choice, and most of the time, that's false. It is false here. They took some swings, and they they missed, but it's admirable that they took the swings. It's also understandable why they missed, and I think that probably they settled into reality within the first 72 to 96 hours of him being on the job. And when I say they, I really mean him. Uh, He probably came in and his initial idea was, you know what, let's just take a blowtorch to the field. And if it goes up in flames, then that'd be great. But they found out the field was soaked and it didn't go up in flames. And uh, they couldn't, that's the metaphor for they couldn't attract anyone. And so they get Josh Heupel. And I, you know, I know it's easy to look at that situation and say, why did we pay a search firm just for you to hire the coach we already could have had? Well, that's it's not as easy as that. That's not the way it happened. And that's not exactly the way search firms work anyway. I know it sounds good. Um, rarely are complex situations accurately able to be summed up in one tweet. Rarely. Sometimes, but rarely. You know, we landed on the moon. Well, that's pretty easy. But how a coaching search works is a little more complicated. So that's why I say the folks at NASA couldn't necessarily run the University of Tennessee. But now that they settle in, listen, this next big domino to fall is one that there is really no informed opinion on. And that's what the NCAA is going to do. And that's what you have to coach under the cloud of. But yet you also can't make it your focus because you have 0.00% control over that right now. Even if you're Danny White, the AD, much less Josh Heupel. So what they have to do is they just have to stabilize. Like They have to make sure whatever they're building It may be a one-story house. It may be a five-story house. But whatever they build from this point forward, they just have to make sure it's on an actual concrete slab of a foundation. And they're not building some shack on top of a bed of sand that's going to blow over at the first sign of a, a, a spring thunderstorm. Because when you do that, you may never recover. As long as you can maintain the foundation, it may not have great talent on top of it, but at least, you know, the financial and recruiting and personnel and staffing infrastructures are in place. You know, at least the support staff and administrative roles are in place. At least the org chart looks semi-functional compared to your other SEC brethren. At least all that can be in place to where if it takes two years or five years, once you come out of whatever this cloud from the NCAA is going to produce, 
you're ready to hit the start button instead of hit the restart button. That's what you want to avoid. You you just hit the restart button. Whatever results you get moving forward, make it be just that. Make it be a step forward functionally. That doesn't mean that your record improves every year. It means you're putting yourself in position to be you know, completely unsaddled with any further figurative chains around you once you do finally come out on the other end of this. What do you think the the sanctions are going to be? Have you gotten any word on anything from the NCAA as far as what they might be thinking? Well, not from the NCAA, but I, I know what Tennessee hopes, and I would feel the same way if I were them. What they hope is because they were proactive and because they themselves internally are the entity that tipped all of this off, then also took action and immediately fired coaches and this and that. What they hope is that the NCAA will look at that and say, okay, we're going to reward you for being proactive. We're also going to basically look at all of what you've suffered. And on top of that, they got 28 kids in the portal right now. So they're going to look and say, all right, there's your scholarship sanction. It's unofficial, but that's what a scholarship reduction would have done to you. You also got rid of the guilty parties. Moving forward, we here at the NCAA, we want to be proactive and we want to take the approach of punishing the guilty parties individually instead of the entire collective. And we get a lot of collateral damage of people who weren't even involved in that process. We want to make sure we do that. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to let Tennessee be this shining beacon of how you should handle infractions moving forward. And we're basically going to come in with a rubber stamp and we're going to put it down on the table and say, good enough. And then we're going to move on. That's what Tennessee hopes. Tennessee hopes they already impose their own sanctions on themselves. Now, that is realistic to think. Well, I think it's reasonable to think. That's why it may not be realistic, because I can't remember the last time I watched the NCAA Infractions Committee handle a case, and I looked at it and said, you know, they handle that exactly how I thought they should. It's just, it's it, it's walk outside any given morning, kind of lick your finger and stick it in the air. What, I wonder which way the wind will be blowing this morning. I don't know. It's, it's Monday. It's February 9th, which gives me zero context clues. That's kind of the same way I feel when someone asks, hey, how do you think this NCAA case is going to go? If you if you were to try and make a career out of that, it doesn't matter if, if you were the receptionist at the front desk in Indianapolis and you worked in the building every day. If you tried to make a career in predicting the way NCAA um, you know, Committee on Infractions outcomes will be, you'd be homeless pretty quick. Yeah, I think, I think the same. I mean, they've been pretty, pretty inconsistent with the way they're, they've handled a lot of cases. I mean, there's really no set model for the way they're handling cases. It seems like, it seems like every program is on a different kind of level. Well, yeah, that's, that's kind of the complaint. And, you know, I don't think they do themselves any favors long-term because you you ultimately, you know, you are a governing body if you're the NCAA. And college athletics, the SEC or the Big 12, they don't need you to exist. You do really need them to exist. And so I'm not so sure. You, know, you talk to people inside the, the college football world more and more. They look forward 15 years from now, maybe sooner, but just to be safe, 15 years from now, a lot of them don't even think that the governing body that governs college football uh, will be the NCAA. It, it'll be whatever, you know, whatever they decide to construct themselves. And maybe that includes sort of a detachment by the quote unquote power five from the rest of college football and college athletics. And they therein provide themselves their own governing body. But I'm just, 
listen, imagine, imagine how much money is on the line with this stuff. And then imagine a governing, allowing, by the way, allowing a governing body to come into one of your member institutions because a school was recklessly, you know, handing out cash and giving some discounts for hotel rooms and completely derailing a multi-million dollar operation because of that. It's in no other world would that make sense except this one. And it doesn't make sense in this one. The only thing that flies is being able to say, well, that's just the way it was always done. If you and I constructed major college football today, there is zero chance that we would create the NCAA or that we would contract the NCAA to be our governing body. The only reason it is right now is because it has been for a long time. Yeah. I mean, I agree with that. I know that if I were, and you'd be the same way from what you just said, if, if we were constructing a model for what college football should look like, I highly doubt that we would select the NCAA to be uh, the, our governing body. Just wanted to switch to the the big 12 real quick, go out to Texas. And then I got a couple questions for you on the landscape of college football before I let you go. But just wanted to switch out to Texas and get your thoughts on Steve Sarkeesian and the staff that he's put together. I know he, brought a lot of guys with him from Alabama. Yeah, I um you know to be honest with you, my focus with Texas is a lot more just on Sark himself than his assistant coaches. I you know, I, I if they were to hire him as an offensive coordinator, I think it was the greatest hire in history because number one, you would have pulled a coordinator away from Nick Saban, but number two, he would be doing what I know he is uniquely 100% qualified to do. I have big questions just personally as to whether Steve Sarkeesian is qualified to be the head coach at Texas. And I I would think this if he were hired as the head coach at Oklahoma state being hired as the head coach at Texas carries with it this enormous additional burden. It's why it's such a high profile position. And so few people have succeeded in it. That doesn't mean it's impossible by any stretch, but I just think there is a, a certain width of the shoulders figuratively you have to have when you walk into that job to command the room and the Texas room is not like my bedroom I'm sitting in right now. It's like a huge hotel ballroom and there are a lot of people in it. Some of them don't need to be there. And I go back the model for this walking into a major program with that many cooks in the kitchen, the model for that is Nick Saban. Nick Saban, when he got hired from the Dolphins and came to Alabama, Alabama was a mess. Alabama was a much bigger mess internally than Texas is now. Uh, People don't remember that necessarily, but it was. And so they had a lot of people. I know some college fans don't believe this is true, but they had a lot of people, as probably does the Texas program right now, who would much rather have had a mediocre program that they had access and influence to and over than to have a top three program that they didn't have much access to and influence over. And that's, that all goes back to the currency of power and what it really means to some people to be able to have that access and to be able to, you know, go eat with your buddies at the country club on Thursday afternoon and say, Hey, I talked to coach yesterday, talked to the offensive coordinator. Here's what we're doing Saturday against Baylor. Watch what we do in the first quarter. Well, that, well, that was happening at Alabama. They, to save you the stories that was happening. So Nick Saban walks in and Nick Saban looks around and he says, I'm coming here as your head coach under these conditions. The condition is I run everything. I have total say, this is not a democracy. It'll be a lot more dictatorship, but you got the right dictator in place. This isn't a country it's college football. So you need one guy running things. I'm the guy. And here's the point. You got a lot of people around here that because of the seven figures they put on a check every year, think that they deserve decision-making power over certain aspects of this organization they have no clue about. 
Uh, you know, they made millions of dollars in the concrete industry. Therefore, they think they understand how to hire a support staff and an athletic director and to tell them what to do. They don't. And so you can have it that way, but you're not going to have me here. You're going to have either or. And so Nick Saban could do that is my point. Can Steve Sarkeesian do that? Because everything Saban did at Alabama, someone's going to have to do at Texas. You're going to have to walk in and tell legacy, multi-generational types that your voice is not going to matter as much here. I need you to still write the same kind of check, but your voice is going to be diminished. Your influence and access is going to be diminished. I'm running the show. They probably can't even spell his last name yet, and they're already being told if he's doing it the right way. You're not going to have the kind of access you used to. You can understand why that wouldn't go over very well. Now, here's the irony. If the average Texas fan who's working at a Publix in Denton, Texas, if they hear that, they think, great, that's our guy. That's exactly who we want. And they're right. They are right. But the problem is everything that makes Texas, you know, that, that, that Longhorn logo, everything that makes it the brand it is, is driven and powered by money. And that money comes from the pockets of a lot of people who don't feel the same way as our Texas fan who works at Publix in Denton, Texas does. And so the folks you need to grease the skids, they're turned off by that. And therein lies the catch 22 of why it's so hard to take over a program like Texas and why I have reservations. I won't go as far as to say doubts, but just reservations as to whether Steve Sarkeesian is the right guy for that job. And here's the problem. We didn't just mention a thing about football. It was all administrative. We didn't talk about offense. We didn't talk about which quarterback, which offense they're going to run. We didn't talk about any of that. We just talked about administrative, which shouldn't be the way it is, but but is the way it is. Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything you just said. I know I don't I don't really know if Mac Brown, you know, had that kind of control. I think the landscape of college football is a little bit different then. But I obviously know that Charlie Strong definitely did not have that support as neither did Tom Herman. I think they kind of fell into the the hole of the boosters and all that. Yeah, I would also say I think some of those guys, you know, Mac not, Mac Mac is different. Mac Brown is he is uniquely qualified to be a head coach at a place like Texas. Mac Brown's the kind of guy who could walk in and tell you you're fired, but end up having you leave in a good mood. You know, Mac Brown's the kind of guy who can say, Bennett, we got to let you go, brother. And I'm, I'm telling you, man, trust me, if you think it's hard for you, it's hard for me. But let me tell you something, man. I remember my cousin and I were working on a dairy farm back when I was in college. And brother, when, when, our, when our boss came in, Not only did he tell me I'm fired, but he told me after I fed the mules and spent a whole day on that farm that I wasn't going to get paid for. (laughs) Can you imagine that? So listen, I'm going to write you a great letter of recommendation. And uh, you let me know if you need anything. I'll tell you what, you hit me up next week. We may have you over for lunch. Is that okay? And you leave feeling great. And you just got fired. And Mac Brown's able to, he was able to handle an entire ocean of boosters in, in, in sort of that back slapping manner to where he was uniquely qualified for it. He won a title there, and and that kind of deified him to all of Longhorn Nation, but he understood how to work that circuit. Charlie Strong was ill-equipped for it. Sarkeesian's probably ill-equipped for it, although I don't know that. Herman was certainly ill-equipped for it, and I think a lot of those guys may have been hired with the motivation of of getting another backslapper in there, and they just missed the target badly. Yeah, I mean, I agree. That's great stuff there. Just wanted to get a couple more questions in about the landscape real quick before I let you go. Obviously, there's always talk about the playoff expanding to eight. Uh, Do you like it at four? Do you think it should go to eight? No, I'm not a fan of any kind of playoff expansion. 
And all the arguments I hear only further solidify my belief that hashtag four and no more is the right approach to take to this. My problem uh, very, very foundationally is I think that when people start talking about the problems with college football, plural, they start on chapter 19 of the book. They don't start on chapter one. See, if I were to tell you the story from chapter one, it would become a lot more clear. You know, there was a time not very long ago at all where <laughs> there was a time kind of long ago where we decided a champion by the AP. And so that was before we ever had a, a an official title game. Well, then you fast forward several years and you know, late nineties, people get an idea and they create the BCS because we want to have a championship game. And for a while, for about a decade and a half, I'd say it was, we had one versus two, we had a championship game and then people weren't happy with that. And so there's clamoring for a playoff. And at the time, no one went past four. It was 14 playoff, 14 playoff, 14 playoff. Well, we finally get it. Okay. And so I was fine with that. But 14 playoffs, fine. A 14 playoff does not sacrifice the integrity of the regular season to me. So I was okay with it. And I'm still okay with it. The problem with college football does not lie in the concept of a playoff. Here was the problem. The problem was the entity that bought the college football playoff, being ESPN, did what a lot of us would do if we ran that. They used their huge machine to market the playoff. Well, the problem is, if you're a college football fan, you got to go through ESPN. They are, whether whether people like it or not, they are the hub. They are the central entity for college football coverage. You're either watching games there, you're watching studio coverage. And they took that playoff contract and they paid billions for it and said, we're going to market this thing, not just in December. We're going to market it year round. And so when you go through ESPN, kind of subconsciously now, you have it ingrained in your mind that at any given point in the year, the nucleus of college football is the playoff. Everything's geared towards the playoff. You and I are watching Kent State versus Toledo on a Thursday night, and midway through the second quarter, they're talking about the playoff instead of the actual action on the field. Now, listen, I can't fault them because it's their money. And so they're using their machine to market their their property. And I get that. But the problem is, it took the subconscious of the college football fan and it took their mind and, and trained them to think the nucleus of the sport is the playoff. The nucleus of college football should never be the playoff. The nucleus of college football is, has, and should always be the regular season. See, now we're on chapter two, chapter three, chapter four. Okay, so then we get a little ways into the playoff. And then all of a sudden, we're not happy with four anymore. And we got guys opting out every now and then. And we got bowl games being called meaningless. You know, like the Cotton Bowl. I'm not talking about the the, the uh, Weed Whacker Bowl, man. We're talking about like big time bowls. And so then all of a sudden, the answer from the same crowd that wanted to create the playoff right now that's ultimately led to opt outs and led to meaningless bowl games, their answer for the problems the playoff has created is bigger playoff, is more playoff, which is never squared with me. I know it sounds like it would work. And I know all the reasons people lay out. I'm telling you, I think the logic is flawed. I'm telling them, I guess. I think the logic is flawed. How about this? How about instead of thinking that expanding the playoff is going to fix college football, why don't you start reprioritizing what the nucleus of the sport should always have been? And that is the most unique regular season in American sport and in global sport to me. And also... You take the pageantry and tradition and you start recapsulating that as what makes college football great instead of 
two or three or four or five games, however big you want your playoff to be at the end of the year. That's never the way college football should have been structured or is meant to be structured. And secondly, I'm a big fan of keeping the playoff very exclusive because I think exclusivity is a good thing. I don't believe in building a giant safety net under teams in the regular season. I don't believe in this concept of, well, listen, play these games as if you know you can afford to fall. And instead of, you know, splattering all over the pavement, well, you'll just, you know, you'll go, whew, well, can't afford to do that again. You cannot have that conceptually and still maintain that unique urgency that you have in regular season college football games. When you play a regular season college football game, you are playing it under the impression that if you lose, your season may very well be shot. That is a great thing because it creates a playoff atmosphere in a regular season setting. And so if you add up all the games that have that feel to them, you get way more than however many games an 18 playoff would give you. People just don't train themselves to think about it that way. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think it's more perception than the actual product on the field. Like everything you just said about ESPN, you know, the way they market the playoff and different things like that. I think where a lot of fans get you know, frustrated and different things like that about the playoff is you have the same teams in it every year. You got Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State. Those are obviously teams that have created their own brand, teams that recruit extremely well. Is the saving grace for fans, could that be the transfer portal? One of them, yeah. I think name, image, and likeness could be another one. But I also just, I reject this notion that that Alabama or Clemson or Ohio State or Oklahoma have access to this magic elixir that no one else has access to. What aggravates me is if college football were really built for a few elites to thrive, who in their right mind would pick a team in Tuscaloosa, Alabama and Clemson, South Carolina to dominate? If college football were built to be predisposed to the elites dominating, Miami would dominate, Los Angeles or uh, USC and UCLA would dominate, teams in major markets would dominate, Rutgers would be a national power. That's not what the sport is built to reward something. It's built to reward investment in the right things. And so at Alabama, they've invested in the right things. At Clemson, they have too. And I got some theories as to why they've taken off like rocket ships over the last few years, but really by and large, They don't have access to anything other programs don't have access to. The problem is a lot of these programs, again, they start the explanation for why they're underachieving on chapter 17. They don't show you all the terrible internal decisions they made and all the poor hires they made. And then on poor hires on top of that, on top of that, and they dug themselves a hole. It's easier for them to say, oh, look at the boogeyman over there, the playoff in the corner. It's allowing a few teams to thrive at the expense of the many. It's much easier to do that than to say, look over here in the mirror we are to blame for our own problems. And it's it's easy to it's always easy to do that. It's easy for just humankind in general, in life, in society to say something or someone else is the cause of my problem instead of me taking personal responsibility. That'll that's the way it'll always be. That's why it's it's a losing argument. It's like trying to nail jello to a wall to get a, a group to think this way. But I'll I'll try losing effort, but I'll try anyway. <laughs> Oh, that's good stuff. Josh, you're a pros pro, my friend. Can't thank you. Can't thank you enough for joining me today. Tell everybody where they can find you on social media and how they can watch Late Kick Live and get access to Late Kick Pod. 
Yeah, I appreciate it, man. So on Twitter, it's at Late Kick Josh. Uh, you can also find the Late Kick with Josh Pate anywhere you get your podcast and subscribe to the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. That's where we do Late Kick Live several times a week. There's a lot of other stuff on there. You, you're missing out if you're not there already, if you're a college football fan. Thank you, Josh. Looking forward to talking to you down the road and stay safe out there. All right, brother. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Josh. That was Josh Pate, host of the Late Kick Live and Late Kick Pod. Don't forget to subscribe to the 247 Sports YouTube channel to get more access to Josh. And as soon as you're probably listening to this podcast, the phrase Mr. College Football is probably going to be trademarked by Josh. So I'll be looking to share some of the benefits of that as well. I'm just messing around. But anyway, it's time to get out of here. Thank you so much for listening. If you love this podcast, make sure that you spread the word. It's the fastest way for us to grow, word of mouth, and make sure that you donate on the link in the show description. Y'all are the best audience in the world. Thank you so much, and we look forward to talking with you again real soon. God bless, everybody.